bring the crowd in. <laughs> well, it's good to see everyone this morning. Glad you could be with us for a time of worship. I know Dan has been preaching on some of the minor prophets for the last number of weeks. And I thought that I would uh, take a different route this morning and preach on what might be considered a more traditional Christmas passage using Matthew chapter 2, the first 12 verses as our text. And I will allude to some of the other verses in Matthew and maybe even some from the Gospel of Luke as well. So Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. And Matthew writes, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star is when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Judea, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. They fell down and worshipped him, and opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, we know this is a, fam- a familiar passage, uh, one that we, I'm sure, have heard many times and have read many times. But I pray that you might speak to us, that we might learn various lessons that you would have for us as we see the encounter of the wise men with Herod and then with Christ. In his name, amen. I've entitled the sermon this morning, Official Notification. Herod received an official notification about the birth of the Messiah. How many of you have ever received an official notification of something that was very important? I mean, not one of these, you know, you have won five million dollars and you keep reading if, you know, your numbers match some imaginary number someplace and not that, but something really official where you're told something. Some of you raised your hands. Okay. All right. Who gives an official notification? An official? (laughs) Somebody who's authorized to state something on the part of someone else. Uh, When I was active in the Navy Reserve, one of the things I did was to serve as a casualty 
Assistance Calls Officers, abbreviated as CACO. Uh, you've all seen pictures, I'm sure, on television and movies where when someone dies, there are military personnel who come to their home to give them notification of that. And so one of my responsibilities for a number of years was to be involved in that process of going to someone's home and informing them that their son or daughter, a husband, could be a wife, child, was dead. And that was one of the jobs that I had that I dreaded and hated probably more than anything else. It was, it's hard to describe the difficulty of doing that. And I can remember very clearly the last time I did that. Uh, someone in Bailey's Harbor had died, a young naval officer, and um, a chief petty officer, senior chief petty officer, and I went to their home to give notification. And you're always nervous. I remember as I got out of the car, I just stood there and kind of leaned over a little bit, and I was just taking some deep breaths before we went up to knock on the door. And I felt uh, sufficiently calm. I was about to say something to the senior chief who was with me, and I realized he was leaning over, taking some deep breaths, getting ready to go up to the door. But you go up and you knock on the door. People come to the door, and you have to deliver a message which is not well received. Uh, there have been times when people would not even let us in the house. We had to stand on the porch to deliver a message through a screen door. But one of the things which happened over and over again, well, first it was always the denial. No. Whenever we see some bad news, we always say, no, that can't possibly be. But there was also, in, in conjunction with that disbelief, a desire for more information. And sometimes all we had was they died of cardiac arrest. The best of my knowledge, everybody who does die, die has cardiac arrest. But usually information come, came out in, in bits and pieces over time. There were a few occasions where people would say, I, you know, I, I don't believe you. I'm going to wait for official notification about my son's death. And we'd say, ma'am, this is your official notification. We have this message from Washington that we are conveying to you. And tomorrow someone else is going to come and they're going to lead you through a stack of paperwork they need your signature to take care of any number of things so that you can get a grant from the government, cash grant, you can sign to get insurance payments, to take care of the shipment of remains from wherever the person died to wherever you want him to go, funeral arrangements, a lot of things. But we gave an official notification from the United States government about some tragic thing that affected that family. And the fact that there was disbelief did not mean that it did not happen. And that was never a pleasant, a pleasant thing to do. In this passage... We are told some things, and we wish we knew more. 
we're really given a contrast between the Magi, the wise men, and Herod, and perhaps even the the chief priests and the Pharisees, if you wanted to, to look at that, but I, I won't get into them. But as we look at the passage, we find that it starts out by saying that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king. Now, Herod died on, I think it was 4th of April, 4 BC. I mean, Jesus had to be born before that time. So he wasn't born in the year zero, as we sometimes think with our calendar. He was actually born several years before, before the calendar started that we use. So these men have been traveling. These wise men, these magi have been traveling probably for months. We don't know exactly where they came from. They could have come from as far away as Iran. Maybe something a little bit closer. Maybe the area of Baghdad. Perhaps areas a little bit west of the Baghdad area. It just says they were in the east. We don't know a lot about them. Even the word itself, Magi, which is in the original, is a term that can mean any number of things. The root of that is uh, where we get the word magician. So we think that they, they probably were not magicians in the sense of the way we would think of illusions today. They may have been something maybe a little bit more darker than that, but perhaps not. We have uh, people today who are called magicians. Uh, our worship leader in the, a few years ago was very adept at card tricks. He did things which were absolutely remarkable. He could give you a card and you would look at it and then he would go through his various uh, motions and we looked at the card again, it was, it was not there, it was a different card. I don't know exactly how he did that, but it was just mind-boggling. Did he do that through magic and incantation? No, it was, it was a sleight of hand, misdirection, finesse. But there were those in ancient times who practiced dark arts. Did these people? I don't know. They're simply called wise men. The term can also apply to those who were scholars, those who were astronomers or perhaps astrologers. We don't even know how they knew that the star that they saw told them about the birth of Christ. Maybe they had part of the scripture. And there's not a lot in the Old Testament that speaks about the star announcing the birth of Christ. There's a passage in Numbers and a passage in Isaiah. And if you read those passages and that's all you knew, I doubt that you would travel in a caravan a thousand miles on that. It was just sparse. But there was something that happened. And I personally think it was simply God working in their life, drawing them to Judea so they would worship Christ. God was at work in their lives. So they come into Jerusalem. And I said, why did they go to Jerusalem when Jesus was in Bethlehem, which is a few miles away? We don't know. Maybe, maybe the sky was cloudy for a period of time. They couldn't see the star. Jerusalem, the capital city, that would be the most logical place to go for the birth of a king. 
And so they go, and they probably thought the place was going to be just in an uproar of excitement with all that uh, you know, people were doing to celebrate this birth. And yet, nothing was out of the ordinary. Everything was very calm. And they began asking about, where is the newborn king? And word of this birth reached Herod himself. And he called for these people and inquired of them, and what are you talking about, basically? And they say, well, where is the newborn king? We saw his star when we were in the east. We followed it, and we wanted to come and worship him. And in verse 3, it says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. He was troubled. That word can also mean frightened. It can also mean upset. It can also mean any number of other things. But the point was, Herod heard this news, and he was beside himself. Herod was someone who had defended the throne for a number of years, over many plots to overthrow him, and now he's very near his death. He probably died within, probably within a year of this announcement, maybe two years. And even now, he's afraid of someone who may come along and take the throne from him. And not only was he troubled, but all Jerusalem with him. You say, why in the world would Jerusalem be troubled? Because Herod was troubled. And the reason is because Herod was a very ruthless individual. Josephus said of him, of, of Herod the Great, he was a man of great barbarity toward all men equally and a slave to his passion. Rome rebuked him on a number of occasions for his barbarity and cruelty. Rome said, Herod, you're going too far. You know, ratchet back a few notches. Again, relying on what Josephus, who was a historian in that time frame, said, said, Herod was a suspicious man, always sniffing out plots to overthrow his reign. In this connection, he had his favorite wife killed, Mariamne, as well as her grandfather, her mother, and his brother-in-law, not to mention numerous subjects. During the swimming party at Jericho, he also drowned the high priest, who happened to be another of his brothers-in-law. He even killed three of his own sons. Caesar Augustus had to admit, I'd rather be Herod's pig than his son. And Herod was afraid that when he died, because he was not a person that people liked, that nobody would mourn his death. So he had all the prominent leaders of Judea brought into the Hippodrome in Jericho. And then when word of Herod's death reached those, the archers yet stationed around the, the roof of the Hippodrome, they were to slaughter all the people who were inside. And everybody would be all upset and mourning that, so people would mourn his death. So, when it says that all Jerusalem <laughs> was troubled with Herod, that's the reason they were troubled. Herod was not someone that you would trifle with. 
he would kill someone with very little justification if he thought they were a threat in some way, shape, or form. So what does Herod do? Well, Herod was not Jewish. He was only, let's just say he was part Jewish. He probably had no clue as to what the Bible actually said. So he calls for the, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests of the people, to come and give him an answer to where the Christ was to be born. Now, they probably thought he was calling them in for some big theological question. But he said, where is the Messiah to be born? And so without any consultation, it appears, they just said, well, in Bethlehem of Judea. That's what uh, the prophet Micah told us. Okay. So then Herod calls the wise men to himself secretly, told them where the Messiah was. He said, you go find him and you, you worship him, then you come back and let me know where he is exactly, and then I want to go and worship him as well. So they set off, they go to Jerusalem, and now the star it appears has reappeared, and they came to the house where the child Jesus was and Mary and Joseph. So they didn't live in the manger, in the stable for you know months on end. Uh, probably when most of the people left after they registered for the census, uh, there were places available. So they moved into a house for a period of time, and they worshipped him. They they bowed down to this child. And they gave him certain gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's interesting that in the Bible, gold is usually associated with kings. If you were to go back to the book of 1 Kings, and you were to read about the wealth of Solomon, gold is mentioned over and over and over again. Solomon had so much gold that silver was considered just sort of a, not a very valuable commodity. So gold is associated with kingliness. So when they give Jesus gold, there is a recognition on their part that this is a king. They're giving him a gift which is fit for a king. Gold. Now gold is also practical. We know that a short time after this, Mary and Joseph had to uh, hightail it out of town and go down to Egypt. Joseph was not a rich man, as far as we know, he's a carpenter. How would they pay for expenses? Ah, they got gold. Right? So it was a practical gift. They also gave him frankincense. This is the same incense that was used in the Old Testament for worship in the temple. And they would take frankincense and sprinkle it on the altar of incense and a sweet aroma would waft up. I don't know that there's any reference in the Old Testament about frankincense used in connection with people. It's always with worship. 
And the third thing they gave him was myrrh. Myrrh was used as a perfume. Proverbs speaks of a woman sprinkling myrrh on her bed. and uh, Myrrh was used as a perfume. Reading the Song of Solomon. It almost appears as Solomon's coming right in his chariot. There's just clouds building off of him all the, the perfume and powder and everything he's wearing. So it's used in connection with weddings and also in conjunction with burials. They did things a little differently than we do today for burials. When someone died, they would spread myrrh over the body and then wrap it in cloth and then put it in the tomb. We know that uh, when Jesus died, Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus took his body down. They buried Jesus. And before they wrapped him in a cloth, they covered his body with aloes and myrrh. So myrrh is used in conjunction with people. Origen had a very interesting uh, comment on this, where he says, basically what I just told you, that the wise men gave Jesus gold to show that he was a king, frankincense to show that he was God, and myrrh to show that he was a man. Now, the scriptures don't actually say that, but as we look at how those elements are used, Origen may well have been right. Here is the king who is, a, who is the God-man. Now, how much of that these wise men understood, I don't know. But they knew enough to travel a long distance to come to this place to worship, and they did. Now, what did Herod do? Herod was waiting for the wise men to come back so that he could not go and worship, but could go and kill this child. But the wise men were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, so they go back home a different route. And then when Herod realized he's been deceived or tricked, he just is uh, in an uproar, and he sends soldiers to Bethlehem to kill all the male children two years of age and under. We sometimes go to the slaughter of the innocents. Uh, that is a passage which is sometimes uh, criticized by the critics of Scripture because they say, well, there's nothing in secular history about that. But as I recounted a minute ago about uh, what Herod was like, that's something that does not seem out of character with what Herod would do. And not only did this plot to kill Jesus fail because... Joseph was also warned about the threat to the child, and so he, Mary, and Joseph, he, Mary, and Jesus go down to Egypt for a period of time. So Jesus was not killed in that slaughter of the infants. It's rather interesting that of Herod's last two big plots. The plot to kill the infant, the newborn king, failed. And when word of Herod's death was announced, another word was sent to those archers 
in Jericho not to kill the Jewish leaders. So they were simply released and went back home. Now, what do we make of this passage? It's a narrative. We're told a lot of things, but what do we, what do we take away from this? And I've come up with a few things I'm going to mention to you. And you can probably ponder this passage and can and pick up other things that I, I haven't mentioned or haven't even thought of. But I think one thing that we see, which is like an overarching umbrella over this story about the Magi, is that of God's sovereignty. God is in control. Every step of the way, He is in control. The book of Job is an interesting book. The literary style of the book is that the reader knows more than Job, the character the story is about, the book is about. When Job is suffering all that he, that he goes through with the sickness and the loss of all of his possessions and the loss of his family, he doesn't know why that's happening. But the reader does because he knows this is a test of his faith. And Satan has worked to bring difficulty upon Job to show God that Job only loves him because he has so much stuff. And God says, no, you can take everything he has away. He'll still love and worship me. And so Satan is put on some restraints. He He can't take his life. He takes everything Job has away from him. And Job still refuses to to curse God and die, as even his wife told him to do. But in the book, he's never told why all that stuff happened. What he's told as the book ends was, was, Job, I want you to consider who I am and what I can do. And you are called to trust me. And Job does. We go through difficult times. All of us go through difficult times. And we always wonder, why is this happening? And for some reason we have in our mind uh, some idea that if we just wait long enough, everything will be revealed to us. We'll say, oh yes, and now I see God's grand scheme and God's plan. It doesn't happen that way a lot of the time. We go through difficulty and suffering. Sickness, sorrow, death of people we care about. And we don't know why it happened. But our faith is in God, who does know why things happen. C.S. Lewis, who married later in life, uh, he wanted to be a confirmed bachelor, but he met someone and uh, married her. And then she had cancer and died. And he was very distraught. But he kept a record of of what he was going through. He called it a grief observed. And in the end, he says, what I just told you. A lot of times there are no explanations of why something happens. But we are called to be faithful to God and to love him and to trust him. The wise men trusted God. 
Joseph trusted God when he took his family down into Egypt. We are called to trust God. Trust God for those that you know who are not believers. As God drew those wise men to himself, those might have been some of the least likely people who would come and worship Jesus. But nevertheless, they are the ones, in this case, who were drawn to Christ. Pray for those that you love, who are not believers, that God would draw them to himself. Charles Spurgeon, who, except for baptism, believed the same theology we do, said, God, save your elect and elect some more. He had a great love for those who were lost. And he wanted God to save those who were lost. And he realized that was God's business to, to save individuals. And it's sort of an interesting statement. Save your elect and elect some more. I, thought, I think about that actually quite a bit. It's a remarkable, remarkable statement. But God is sovereign. Think of the star. Yeah, now that clouds are gone, you go out at night, you can see some stars. There are always certain stars that are brighter than others. And when you see a star, realize that the star is there because God created it. Say, could God have created a special star or light that guided the wise men? He may have. He may have used an existing planet or star, comet. There are different arguments for all of those things. Or it could have been a special creation. It moved in a way that seems a little bit un, unusual for planets or stars. But, but think about our solar system. The Earth revolves around the sun. But the sun also revolves around the center of our galaxy, the Milky Way. Now, we're not aware of that motion, but we're traveling about almost 600,000 miles an hour around the center of our solar system. Some years ago, I put a ceiling fan in the family room, and when it started up, it was wobbling. So I thought, well, if I, uh, you know, balance a tire, put weights in certain areas, maybe I could put a weight on one of the blades and it would... So I figured out which blade needed some weight, and I think it was just a penny is all it needed, but taped a penny to the end of the fan blade that got top sides, so you couldn't see it. And for months, that worked perfectly. And then all of a sudden, one night, there was this ding! What in the world was that? And something bounced off the wall, and the tape had come loose, and the penny was flung into space. Well, traveling as fast as our solar system is, and I think we're about two-thirds out from the center of the galaxy, why don't we fly off into space? It's a good question. Traveling that fast. The reason is there's, there's a gravitational force that holds the various solar systems in place, the stars in place. Scientists call it dark matter. 
they don't have a, another term for it. There's, there's something there that we can't see, which exhibits a gravitational force, and it holds everything in place. So when you look at that star up in the sky, and you start to contemplate how complex our solar system is, and how everything works in such harmony, think about that star that those wise men saw. So no matter how God did it, it's certainly within his ability to guide them by that light. And then finally, we don't know what the wise men said to Herod when Herod said, after you find the child, come and tell me where he is so I can go and worship him. They may have said, well, we certainly will certainly do that. The Bible doesn't say that. But all we know is that they were warned in the dream not to go back to Herod. So it may well be that they were called to do something that was right instead of what was easy. I, I imagine if they're like everybody I've ever known, if one of them had, unless all of them had the same dream, but if one of them had a dream, this, I, I don't have a good feeling about going back to Jerusalem. Uh, had a dream that Herod wants to harm the child. I think we should just go home. Somebody said, yeah, but if Herod knows that we don't do that, he's going to send people after us. He's going to kill us because we didn't go back to Jerusalem and tell him like he wants to do. And, you know, then, you know how, what route do we go? We know the way we came. How do we know to get back another way? All of these conversations. But in the end, they did what was right. They did what was right. One final thing. A friend of mine was a submarine officer who later became a chaplain. And he said, I said, well, you know, what was the biggest thing you learned when you were working with submarines? He said, the first thing I learned, I was a junior officer who had been on patrol in the Pacific. We were coming back into Pearl Harbor. And the captain gave me the contact. He was the one who was in control of the ship. His name was Charles Lane. And so we're, you know, we were steaming toward Pearl Harbor. Everybody's anxious to get back home. Been gone for several months. And a radio message came in saying that the pier where they were going to tie up wasn't ready for them. They needed to delay their arrival for several hours. So he's standing there, <laughs> wasn't sure what to do. Not realizing the captain was standing right behind him, he said, Well, Mr. Lane, are you going to do something or are you going to run us aground? And he gave a command to put the sub in a, in a wide turn and they just circled for several hours until they were ready for him to, to dock. But he said, I learned something important. He said, sometimes you have to make a decision and do what is right at that moment, even though you don't know every decision you're going to make after that. that, I thought that was profound. Maybe it was not profound, but I thought it was. Yeah, and I thought about that a lot of times I have to make a decision. I only know what I have to do right now. I don't know all the repercussions of this action, what it will be next week or a year from now. I only know what I can do today. And I'll make the next decision when I have to make that decision, and the decision after that. But every time I make a decision, I have to do 
what is right. And as these wise men did what was right by returning to their home country and not going back to Herod, so we're called to do what is right also, I think. We're going to be constantly faced with with moral decisions that may not be easy, but they're the right thing to do. You can probably look at this passage and draw out any number of other applications from what we're given. I'm going to leave you just with those few things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before